welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run canineconservationists.org, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the joy of talking to Dr. Nathaniel Hall of Texas Tech about long searches and training your dog to specific levels of odor concentration. It's a fascinating and at times a little bit technical discussion, but I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So Dr. Hall, if you haven't heard of him yet, um, runs the Canine Olfaction Research Lab at Texas Tech University, which focuses broadly on exploring the capabilities of the dog's nose and how training influences olfactory perception. Dr. Hall earned his PhD from the University of Florida in 2015, and while he was there, he worked with fruit bats, dogs, and wolves. He continued his studies as a postdoctoral scholar at Arizona State University in the Canine Science Lab. I am so excited for you guys to get to hear this interview, but first, I do have to remind you that our field vehicle repair is ongoing. As I record right now, I'm actually trapped in Salt Lake City, um, so if you notice poor audio quality, I do apologize. I was not expecting to be here at this point. I flew down to Salt Lake City on a Friday. It is now a the following Thursday, and um, I did not bring my microphone, but um, so the car and the van has a new engine, new fuel injectors. Um, I did a bunch of work on it single-handedly over the holiday weekend. Um, I'm recording just after Memorial Day. Um, turns out the first shop installed the wrong fuel injectors. The second shop still doesn't quite know what's wrong. Um, they're replacing the turbo actuator at this point. I am requesting refunds for a lot of the work, um, that the, well, particularly the first shop did because they put the wrong parts in. Um, but anyway, um, we are really hurting for money and, um, would really appreciate anything, um, that you can throw our way, even if it's just sharing this podcast or the fundraiser with friends and family, you can find the links, um, to donating and all of that over at canineconservationists.org, which is also where you'll find the show notes for this episode. So without further ado, let's get to it with Dr. Hall. All right. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hall. Can you start off by giving us a little bit of an overview of the lab and the work that you're doing down in Texas? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, so we're down at Texas Tech University and uh, run the canine olfaction lab. Uh, you can sort of join our few, you know, our five friends on Facebook and like our page to see sort of what we're up to and what we're doing. Um, I believe we have Instagram, but I can't remember. I'm terrible with the social media, so it depends on whoever <laughs> I follow you. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on who I've assigned that work to do. But um, we also have a web page. But nonetheless, um, so what is our lab? What do we do? Um, essentially, we are um, a, a program that I sort of consider ourselves the uh, the bench top scientist of sort of dog science. So. Uh, our goal is really to try and understand uh, how the dog nose works ultimately, and how can this be applied for the wide variety of do- you know jobs that our detection dogs serve in, in those roles. Uh, and what we do is really the the I guess initial preliminary, the groundwork kind of research to better get a fundamental understanding of what they can do. Uh, so we have a lot of kinds of experimental controls of what we're doing. So we use olfactometers for automated odor delivery device or automated odor delivery that provides a a controlled and stable odor for the dogs. Uh, We have automated detection of alerts and responses and feeders and a whole bunch of different fun gadgets that the dogs love to work with. Um, And our goal is basically to understand how does our training impact their sense of smell with uh, using, you know, principles of tests that have been developed through psychology for a long time. Um, so we have a wide variety of things going on, uh, and essentially what we like to do is see, you know, does this work? And I'd say probably, you know, 80 to 90% of my job is finding out what doesn't work. But then when we find a couple of things here and there that do work, we partner up with a variety of different people who are out in the field and sort of bring that to a more applied sort of test. And then if that works, we start sort of uh, advertising it, publishing it, things like that. So we kind of go through a, a series of, of works where we start off trying to understand what's even going on to begin with and try and take a lot of the things that we, we assume or a lot of times that, you know, 
obviously that you know some people have known forever and try and actually formalize this and, and, and demonstrate these things through a data-driven process. And then once we've established that, really try to apply it uh, to help dogs out in the field right now. Excellent. Yeah. So what actually is an olfactometer for those of our listeners who are a little bit less uh, well-versed in our bench science? Like, what does that actually do and how, how, how do we use it for the dogs? Yeah, um, they come sort of in all shapes and sizes. And in reality, it's kind of a weird word uh, to begin with of, of where it comes from. Uh, we name all of our olfactometers uh, because we come up with different models all the time. So I think we're currently working on the odorometer 6000. But um, <laughs> basically, all that all really is is an intricate air delivery system that essentially uh, allows you to, through electronic valves and controls, um, control what odor is being presented for how long. It allows mm-hmm. you to turn the odor off and it allows you to pre-dilute it, dilute it to lower concentrations um, and also include your distractors. And basically the, the reason why I like it or the, is that one, it can you know tell when you ask it to, it can present the odor for a very exact period of time. And when you don't want the odor, it can turn the odor off. Um, and then, that is so cool. And then the nice thing is, is that uh, it allows you to have kind of a stable setup that allows you to control for a lot of things that dogs like to do. So dogs like to, when they find your target odor, and if, say, it's in a scent wheel, a lot of times they like to lick it, or a lot of times they like to smush it, you know, with their nose. And then, essentially, if you're using that same canister, from every trial thereafter, the dog is using smush smell as their target mm-hmm. odor versus something else. And with the olfactometer, it's not like we have one single thing. And if that thing gets contaminated, you kind of move it around. Our odor itself is protected and controlled. And the ports that the dog responds to actually stay in the same position. It's not like the different ports are moving or the odor is moving. That's always the same. So if the dog sort of slobbers up port one on trial one, uh, if it goes back and says, oh, there's my slobber, it may not be there this time because the odor has changed positions through the computer, but that port is still the same. So that means that all kinds of scent marking related issues or things that the dog might, like if this port looks a little bit different, you know, or that this box might look a little bit different so that the dog is showing really good detection, but it's because they just know that this one looks a little bit different or that this one's, you know, got marked by something. All of those kinds of things just go away as potential sort of contaminations in the procedure. Um, so that's where they can become pretty useful from our perspective. It also allows our handlers to always be blind. So uh, nobody knows what's going on at any period of time, and not even me. Only the computer knows what's going on. Sometimes <laughs> I pretend to know what's going on. But um, <laughs> but then it, el- it eliminates those types of handler bias situations um, in an easy way. And it really just allows us to focus in on what can the dog do. Um, and this isn't to say like this is a way that we should do training per se. It's really developed as a way for trying to understand what the dog can do. And then from there, we can learn on how to sort of translate this uh, to improve our dogs in the field. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. That definitely sounds like a really interesting tool to, to get to play around with and uh, yeah, figure out. There are so many questions that you could answer with that that you, you can't really answer with a scent wheel um, or a lot of the other ways that, that we tend to work and train with our dogs on more the applied side of things. Um, so you also mentioned kind of one of the things that you're looking at is the how training can affect the sensitivity of the dogs that we work with. I think that was something that you worked on in 2016. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and particularly how like the different training that we present to our dogs may actually affect what they're what they end up perceiving and how they end up deploying in the field. Yeah, most certainly. So one thing that um, we commonly forget because we learned a long time ago, um, and I guess we're still learning, but nonetheless, all of our sensory systems are actually learned phenomenon, learned behavior. Mm -hmm. So you learn to see, you learn to smell, you learn to hear. Um, You know, there's a wide variety of sounds that are going on in the world. And you're constantly having to decipher the ones that are important and the ones that are not important. And you learn very quickly that speech, you know, of that frequency is a very important thing to pay attention to. And it's very easy to 
to sort of pay attention to that. And your ears have to do a lot of really complex kinds of, of, of things, like being able to pick out your name in a crowded room when someone mm-hmm. says your name. You can easily pick that out. And from a from just a noise perspective, you know, thinking about it, you you know, all the different noise that's going on, and someone says Nathan from across the room, immediately you can turn and say, it came from over there, who's talking about me, and why are they saying my name, right? Yeah. And that's something that we've learned to do. This is not just a biological phenomenon. This is something that we learn through our processes. And the dogs do the same with their sense of smell. Uh, and, I mean, also with their sense of hearing. You know, dogs can also hear their name from a mile away a lot of times. But, um, yeah. but with their sense of smell, it's just the same. You learn to smell. What you smell today is not what someone else smells, right? You know, two people can smell the same thing and have different perceptions of that. And it's not because that there's a difference in the chemical structure per se. There might be genetic differences, but there's also going to be learning history differences between them. So like uh, an example I like to use for our students is that you've probably been to something like Bath and Body Works and have smelled a candle that has smelled sweet, right? There are some of them that I'm like, oh, this candle smells so sweet. Maybe some of you guys like that, but some, you know, it smells so sweet. But actually, no candles smell sweet. Sweet is not a smell. Sweet is not, uh, it's a it's a chemical taste. So you can taste sweet, but you cannot smell sweet. Sucrose has almost no perceptible smell to it. So what are you smelling? You're smelling vanilla. And why are you associating that with sweet? Is because you've had vanilla and other similar things being paired with sugar throughout your entire lives and cookies and desserts. And, oh my God, like that. Yeah. and the reason why you perceive that candle as being sweet has nothing to do about your biology or fundamentalism. It's because that's just what you've eaten for your life. And there are going to be certain things like cinnamon, for example. I remember in undergraduate, we made a, we saw uh, something on PBS and we're like, ooh, we're going to make that. And it had cinnamon paired with a ground beef. And uh, I'd never had that combination before. And it did not go because my only combination of cinnamon was with like cookies, right? Cinnamon mm-hmm. cookies. So then pairing that with ground beef just did not go. That doesn't mean that cinnamon doesn't go with ground beef, right? Obviously, there's an entire culture that absolutely loves this. It just means that I have learned to associate that smell with that type of type of thing. And I've learned to sort of smell it as, as you know, being a sweet smell, not a savory smell. So we our learning percept, how we perceive things, is strongly dependent on our experiences and our learning histories. So that's one step. Now to actually get into how does this functionally relate whatsoever to what you're doing with the training. So uh, one area where we've been uh, focused on this more recently has been with concentration of the odors that you're interested in. So a lot of times we think of, I train my dog to odor A. Uh, Let's just use, uh, I don't know, um, anise extract, let's just say, some type of arbitrary odor in this case. Let's say, I like oranges. Let's do oranges. So you train your dog to oranges. And you train them with, say, some type of um, orange essential oil, and you train them to one drop or something like that. So typically, a lot of times we might assume that now my dog can detect orange oil, whether I give it 10 drops, 20 drops, 30 drops, zero drops, a fraction of an oil, if the dog smells oranges, it should alert. And what we've been doing is actually looking at, well, how does it depend on the concentration that you train it on? And um, using sort of some of our olfactometers, but also just using some serial dilutions, essentially what we've what we've done are, are really three sets of experiments. So the first one is, is uh, if you train your dog on one concentration, you always use the same concentration. How does that impact their detection thresholds or the minimum concentration that they're able to detect for you? So uh, what we do by that is say you detect the dog to one drop of orange oil and mineral oil or something like that. Uh, Can your dog detect a half a drop, a quarter of a drop, a tenth of a drop, a hundredth of a drop, a thousandth of a drop, ten thousandth of a drop, you know, a hundred thousandth of a drop, a millionth of a drop, et cetera and keep going until what they can detect. So one group of dogs were trained always to say, one drop of, of orange, one drop of orange, one drop of orange, one drop of orange. We had a comparison group that was trained with one drop of orange, 
half a drop of orange, a quarter drop of orange. And these numbers are just arbitrary for the experiment. And um, mm -hmm. perhaps there might be a way that we can share the link to where these articles are, um, if you'd sure, like, sure. later. Uh, but anyway, the, the, but the point is that the other dogs got lower and lower concentrations to what they were training. And then we measured the detection threshold for the dogs after each set of training. So the dogs that got one drop, measured their threshold, trained them again with one drop, measured their threshold, trained them again with one drop, measured their threshold. The other dogs, we trained them with one drop, measured their threshold, trained them with half a drop, measured their threshold, trained them with a quarter drop, measured their threshold. What we found is that our control dogs ultimately had relatively stable thresholds. It was about the same from the beginning to the end, whereas the experimental dog showed about a hundredfold improvement in their thresholds from the beginning to the end. So by training them with lower and lower concentrations, they were getting better at detecting lower and lower concentrations of it. Seems simple, makes sense, right? But it highlights the fact that if you're always training with the same concentration, not experimentally manipulating it, then your dog's going to become sort of a little bit focused to what that concentration range happens to be. Uh, so they can become more sensitive if you explicitly train them to become more sensitive. In a follow-up experiment, we looked at, well, let's say I'm just only training to one drop. If I just happen to plural out one day, a tenth of a drop, or uh, uh, will they find it? Will they spontaneously alert without any additional training to that? And basically what we found is that anything beyond sort of a tenfold concentration change, the dogs needed explicit training. They wouldn't spontaneously alert to it. They, uh, and what we mean by spontaneously alert is uh, they come across it, the first time they detect it, they... Uh, um, if they alert to it, they're non-reinforced for alerting to it. So it's a non-reinforced kind of thing because the first time you alert your dog to find something, they're going to get better at it right away. Or, so the first time you reinforce and alert to a, a new odor, they're going to get better at it. So this was in non-reinforced probes. So they would, re they would alert to anything within about a tenfold range, but beyond that tenfold range, they did not spontaneously alert to it, suggesting that explicit training is going to be necessary beyond that. Um, another interesting thing is that we were looking at, can we actually get them to not alert to low concentrations? And the answer was, yes, we could, uh, which in some cases can be good. You might explicitly want the dog not to alert to low concentrations, but in other cases it can be explicitly bad because sometimes in our, a lot of our handling, you know, we might go, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different philosophies out there and some of them are you know, I'll just make everything dirty, everything odor dirty, so that the dog will just learn to pick out the targets. But one issue that might come up is that it means that if you accidentally sort of contaminate some of your controls with just a little bit of your odor, if the dog can smell it, they, you can, and they maybe false alert a couple of times and you tell them, oh, it's not there because you didn't know it was there because you accidentally contaminated some area. It means that the dog can't actually be explicitly trained not to alert to contamination levels of the target odor and alert to higher concentrations. But what if you were interested in the trace? You know, if it's an explosive, you know, even though there's only a little bit of C4 that's coming out of this, you know, sealed container, you still want the dog to alert to that. Um, so if you want your dog to alert to trace, then that means that you really have to be particularly careful uh, that you're not accidentally introducing low levels of contamination that you're training your dog off of because they can explicitly learn, okay, I learned, I alert to something that smells this strong, but if it smells below this strength, I don't alert to it because it's just hand, it's just contamination that my, my handler has accidentally done. Um, and then lastly, it can actually go the other way too. So there was a study that we recently published where, um, uh, a couple of dogs went out on, on a search. There was a, a bag out in a field that was unknown, kind of suspicious. Two dogs cleared it, that there was nothing there, opened it up, and there was 30 pounds of an explosive inside. Uh, so that was a bit concerning. So we conducted a series of tests with them to try and identify why did the dogs not alert to it, because it was actually an explosive that the dogs were explicitly trained to find. Uh, and the answer was, is that because of safety reasons, they, the agency was only allowed to train to 30 grams of that explosive. However, what was found was 30 pounds of that explosive. And through a series of tasks where we ruled out 
other potential um, sort of explanations, the most substantial uh, sort of explanation or issue was that the dogs just simply had trouble going from 30 grams of the substance to 30 pounds of the substance. Mm -hmm. The smell was completely different. And this is not completely unexpected from what we know of other smells. So there are uh, some chemicals that at small concentrations smell like white flowers. So jasmine, honeysuckle, everything that you can think of is the nice dew smell of a white flower. However, if you were to take that chemical and extract it from you know, thousands of flowers and isolate it and then use it you know, for something else, it smells like feces. So there's a massive, there's a massive difference between a low concentration of it, which smells beautiful and flowery and you would put in perfume, to a high concentration, which smells like feces. And we can actually have very different perceptions of the exact same molecule at low and high concentrations, which means that if you want the dog to find that range, then you really want to be thinking about how to explicitly train for that range. Otherwise, you might end up dog coming across feces and saying that doesn't smell like white, you know, the flower that I was trained to find. Um, in some cases, maybe that's not important. If it's an explosive, then it is quite important. So, um, yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. And I'm thinking about like, I've been recently kind of learning how to bird. And it feels, you know, visually very similar. One of the tips that I was given recently is if you, you can identify, say, a robin that's 20 feet ahead of you, you know, that's pretty easy for most of us. And then one of the tips they give is like, watch that bird as it goes away or flies away and really try to internalize, like, what can you perceive about a robin, which is pretty easy to identify when it's now a quarter mile away or you know, whatever mm -hmm. distance it is and can you, what can you pick up about its flight pattern and those sorts of things. So it's very similar. Like I'm consciously training myself to do yep. the same thing. Like I can identify most birds if they're sitting still 20 feet in front of me. Yep. Um, yeah. And it's cool that you mentioned the Jasmine um, flower thing. I just learned recently that a lot of the flowers um, that, yeah, they smell at a distance or at a given concentration that um, smell really sweet to us. But then if you get up close and you really start kind of snorting them up your nose, they start smelling more like feces or carrion. That's usually <laughs> an indication that they're pollinated by um, flies as well as beetles because that, that different um, olfactory signal attracts mm, different mm -hmm. types of flowers, which is just really right, like a species, cool ecological yeah. crossover. Um, so, yeah, and this is really interesting. I know in the conservation detection dog field, sometimes we run into things where it's like, well, we won't, we don't really want our dogs to find a super trace odor. If our goal is to be able to collect a scat that we can then send in for DNA analysis, it, we don't really want the dog to find an area where a scat was three weeks ago and it's since right. been eaten and totally yep. decayed or whatever it is. But then on the flip side, when we're looking at an endangered or an invasive plant, for example, we do potentially want the dogs to be able to find like the buried stub of a root that could right. be flower next year. Um, so it seems like for us in the conservation dog field, we just really have to think about what our goals are and whether we want to be more on the, you know, the bomb dog side of things where we do want even trace sorts of things or versus maybe being more on the drug dog side of things where we only want something that would hold up in court. Um, right. Well, I think it, it really highlights that, you know, the decisions that you make uh, are likely to be very individualistic based off of the challenges that you experience. Yeah. And that it really requires you to sit down and think of what do I want my dog to find and mm -hmm. how can I explicitly train what the specific range that I want my dog to find. So like, for example, you know, as you said, with the scat situation, if you really only want them to find concentrations greater than X, then you can explicitly train that. You can explicitly yeah. train the dog to walk feces that had rubbed the earth two days ago, uh, but still alert to that same feces in a different location, you know, and not indicate at that that it had been there or something like that. Uh, those are those are parameters that you can necessarily explicitly train, and then that means that the 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 real answer for a lot of these things is you know the annoying scientific answer is it depends. You know, there's yeah. not a this is how I uniformly train my dog for this. 
because yeah. everyone's going to have different needs for that and that's going to vary and it means that uh, you need to plan on how do I explicitly train my dog for that I think one mistake a lot of times we make is that um, I think a lot of times the dog is magic is a, is a mistake that a lot of times we just think that you know and a lot of times it really does feel like they are magic but uh, but if we assume that they're magic in the sense that you know I train my dog to find this one this one specific this one plant you know of my training sample and that my dog can now find every version of this plant down to mm -hmm. a root stubble to make that as an assumption is a mistake that's you know that's relying on the dog's magic to do it uh, and that's not a place that you want to rely on and instead you want to in the same way that you were just saying with the robin you know you're not magic yes it's obvious i can spot probably a robin at 10 feet right but that is that's not necessarily going to be the skill of a birder and you have to explicitly train yourself for that you know we um, just any, you know, we have pretty good eyesight uh, as a species, and that still means that we need very explicit and defined training parameters to get better at something. And in the same way that an athlete is not just magic without, you know, highly considerate and professional training for exactly what you want to do, right? And, and a program of training for a swimmer is not going to be the same for a long distance athlete, they're going to be different, but nonetheless, they still need, uh, you know, equivalent amounts of, of, uh, you know, specialized training. And uh, I think really the, the goal is that you need to identify what is it that you need to do and how can I program the experiences that focus in on what I want my dog to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, again, going back to the birding thing, like the some of the more experienced birders that I go out with, like we'll be walking under some trees and they'll look up and see, uh, like I won't have even seen a bird and they'll be like, oh, wow, yellow rumped warbler. Yep. How did you perceive that? And then, you know, it's just been like a couple months of me getting into it. And it's, it's amazing how you can really feel getting better at it. And even though in the last couple of years, as I've been getting more and more into scent work, I will often be walking with friends be like, you smell that? <laughs> and have caught something on the air. And it's just that I'm, you know, I'm training my brain to perceive scent more and more. It's, I don't think that my, like the, the physicality of like my, my scent receptors have not gotten better, but my brain is wiring more and more. And that's, it sounds like that's exactly what we're working on with the dogs, you know, in one direction or the other, as far as do we want them to be more specific, specific or more sensitive and, how can we how can we think about that in training? Which actually ties in really well. Next week, I'm interviewing Dr. Simone Gadbois about signal detection theory and all these sorts of things. So it's gonna it's gonna all come together nicely. Um, I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick ad break and then we're gonna come back and talk about um, long searches and staying motivated through that and um, just changing gears into the other end of the problems that we run into in the set dog world. All right, excellent. Hey guys, Kayla here from Canine Conservationists dropping into this episode to tell you about something that I'm really excited to be adding to our Patreon. We have added two additional tiers to our Patreon, the Sensational Scientist and the Canine Conservationist. So you can still join our Patreon for just three bucks a month to submit questions for us to answer at the end of each episode. You can also still um, join at 10 bucks a month to submit questions that our experts will help answer. But now for $25 a month, you can join our Patreon and actually join a monthly live training session breakdown. So that means that once a month, we are going to have a video available of me training either Barley or Niffler in conservation dog work. And then we will have a live meeting on Zoom with adult beverages encouraged where we can go over my training process, what I was thinking about in this session, what I'm hoping to get out of it, and what I'm going to do next time. Even better, at the highest level of our Patreon, you can join as a canine conservationist for 50 bucks a month. I know it sounds like a lot, but what you actually get to do there is you get to submit videos of you working with your own dog 
for me to then help analyze and break down in a kind, supportive, and helpful way. And that will also be available as bonus content for our other patrons. So while it sounds like a lot for Patreon, basically what you're paying for at just 50 bucks a month is for myself and other really excellent trainers to assess your training and work at it in a really cool teamwork sort of way. Um, or for 25 bucks a month, you get access to all of that learning. So if you are serious about trying to get into the field of conservation detection dog stuff, I cannot recommend this enough. I'm really, really excited about this program. And especially if you're listening to this right now, it's still really new. So you are going to get a ton of one-on-one -on -one interaction because there's just not gonna be many people there yet. So you can sign up for that over at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. We'll also be sure to link it over on canineconservationists.org. So um, you just have to remember the one link and we will make it really easy to find. I am super excited about this. Our first offering of this is going to be in July. So at the time that you hear this, you'll still have a little bit of time to sign up before our first live video analysis. All right, back to the episode. All right, so we're back and um, you know, with conservation dog work, we're almost always really interested in keeping our dogs motivated on these long searches. And I know you've started doing some really interesting work on that topic and have some some thoughts. So let's just start there. Yeah, uh, it's a, again, another one of those challenging questions and it's partially going to depend on, again, what is the specific, what is your specific scenario and situation? Uh, and I think ultimately one of the things that we're finding is that uh, performance is going to be strongly dependent on the frequency of which targets appear. So that can be highly different even if you're within the conservation world from one animal to the other, right? If you're looking yeah. for a, a highly, um, you know, um, endangered animal, it's very rare to encounter, that's going to look very different then if you're looking for an invasive species and you're finding it left and right and you're just trying to make sure you clear as much as possible. And that's yeah. going to have very different consequences for the dog because in one situation, they're finding something left and right and the other situation, they're barely finding anything. Uh, mm -hmm. And basically what we find is that when you're in that situation where they're barely finding anything, uh, you can definitely end up with sort of loss of motivation to search. In the same way yeah. that yeah. if you're not getting paid for anything because you're not finding anything, why continue? You know, if you're looking for your your keys and you can't find them and you look in the same place 10 times, you stop looking. You know, you stop looking in that area that I'm not going to find it in that area. Uh, it's a completely logical sort of response that, that you would expect. So what are ways, you know, if, if that's what you have to deal with, how do you try and, and keep the dog's motivation going? How do you try and keep that sort of moving along? Um, and there have been a lot of different, you know, sort of procedures and ways um, to, to try and uh, address those issues. Um, one of probably, I guess, maybe the more obvious ones uh, that a lot of people will um, have been doing are going to be things like uh, reinforcing all clear responses that a particular area is clear of whatever your particular target is. We've only done so far preliminary research on that topic. And essentially what we found is that um, it works with immense precision of what it is that you're reinforcing. It's, okay. a very, it's a very touchy, touchy area. And the reason for that is it, it again will partially depend on your parameters. But say you're in a situation where you might search five days and come across one target, right? So you're gonna be searching in a bunch of different areas and you might come across one target. And if you're searching and reinforcing sort of correct, all clear responses, you'll probably be reinforcing at a much higher rate for not finding something than for finding something, which means yeah. that you're starting to bias responding to not finding something because that's being presented at a much higher rate. And especially if yeah, you're operationally, yeah. we're, we're just running into like matching, matching law or matching theory sorts of problems. And exactly. If you are running in a situation where you are, you have a decent amount of operational fines. So you have a decent amount, like, you know, 
every 20 minutes you're you know you're going to be finding something operationally uh, but there are a couple of areas where you know there's nothing there so you want to reinforce the dog it's pretty good you're going to have a pretty good balance between reinforcing <laughs> all clears and reinforcing an operational find because that find is going to come up along that and in that situation we haven't really found actually too many differences because the frequency is already high enough so the dog's motivated and it balances out pretty well yeah. so uh, it's when you get into that situation where they're not going to find anything and uh, you can start reinforcing all clears but that's basically their only reinforcement contingency the only source of reinforcement is to say there's nothing here uh, because there isn't going to be something else and then how do you maintain that they have sufficiently searched before reinforcing the all clear because we can start to see uh, and one of the things that we we would see is lazy search um, and one of the things that really helped with that is that we had to have very explicit clear definitions of what the dog had to do to indicate an all clear response which required explicit sniffing each of our ports followed by a subsequent response to indicate that something was all clear that was as equal effort to making an alert response because if you end up in a situation, so say you're doing a room search of some sort or a particular grid search, if the answer is, you know, and, you know, out of 100 grids that you're going to search, 99 of them are not going to have anything, then the dog just gets into a very quick pattern of, I'll run around this grid real quick, come back to you, run around that grid, come back to you, get reward, yeah. run around that grid, come back to you, get reward, run around that grid, come back to you, run around that grid, come back to you. And there's not really much of a contingency for missing something because if they miss something, that's only going to be a minor sort of fraction of reward loss compared to mm -hmm. uh, sort of all of the rewards that they would be getting for all of those all clear responses. So it most definitely can work, but it's going to be very touchy in, in yeah. those areas. And we hadn't quite found a formula that sort of always works. So in that sense, there, there, there's nothing particularly there. One thing though that we have been finding that seems to be kind of important is that uh, what's really critical is that, um, so if you're not doing the reinforcing of the blanks, but that your training scenarios match your operational scenarios. Mm -hmm. So if your dog learns to expect in training, so say you're training with your target, that, you know, say you're doing some type of grids, and that they find something in nine out of 10 grids, and then you go to your search environment and they find something one out of 100, then you see a very rapid drop in search because they've quickly learned this, we're not in training anymore, folks. You know, this is different. I'm not going to get that kind of frequency. Whereas if the dog was pre-prepared in a way uh, that, um, that essentially uh, I am expecting to find something in say one out of 40 grids or one out of 50 grids, it's going to take 50 grids for the dog to know if I'm going to find something or not at minimum. Which yeah, means that like basically like proofing them against extinction. It's the idea of, you know, why, why intermittent schedules of reinforcement are more resistant to extinction. Um, but you have to get them used to that idea. <laughs> yep. um, have you found anything with like variability and just dog temperament and being more comfortable with that? I feel like I've anecdotally, uh, having not tested this, but anecdotally seen some dogs who seem to quote unquote enjoy the search almost as much as they enjoy the reward to the point where sometimes they will actually just not alert because they'd rather just keep searching, um, which can obviously be problematic, but those dogs obviously also don't seem to get as discouraged in really low find environments versus the dogs who, you know, the ball is the only thing they want in the whole world. And, you know, you can't even get them to eat or drink water around a ball. Those dogs, uh, you know, while they've got the great motivation and they look really flashy, actually seem to struggle more with building endurance in some ways. Maybe yes. What have, what have you seen? Do you know anything? Uh, uh, I'd say massively so. I mean, we have yeah. some dogs who are like, I mean, they they're machines. Like there's there's just mm -hmm. 
they will just keep going. Like they're, they're amazing. Like they're just truly amazing dogs. They just blow you away. And then you have other dogs that once, <laughs> once things start getting a little disrupted and the schedule gets a little thin, they're like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, this was fun. Uh, thank you for thank you for this you know wonderful opportunity. But uh, I'm I'm going to try to do something yeah. else. I have I no think idea. I empathize with that in certain fields of of work. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, it, it's one of those where you know when the going gets tough, what does the dog do? Some give up. Yeah. And some get going. Um, so we haven't really sort of. Uh, our, our sample for these types of things haven't really been enough to to see if there are certain predictors that might allow you to tell whether one dog would go the other way or not. I can tell you from my own like experience, I would have never predicted the dogs that are are like that are like massively just amazing versus the ones that are not. Like it, it surprised me after sort of it's like really this you know you, yeah yeah really you're doing so well like what is it really so uh, there might be things but we haven't really been able to identify what those are uh it just i mean it comes out very clearly in training you know, and, you yeah. know when you start to sort of introduce that and there are those differences in there and i think you know it means that sometimes there are, you know there's different dog niches for different tasks so um you know all of the dogs Pretty consistently, every dog will do a detection task for us, and they'll do it really well. But some parameters some dogs tolerate, and some parameters other dogs don't tolerate. And there are, as I said, you know, as we said, there are going to be some tasks like invasive species, where you can take a dog that needs a find every ten minutes or every couple of minutes, and that would be a great job for them: is bring them mm -hmm. up into an infested area where you've got to do a lot of clearing and finding things, and that is their job. Uh, Whereas there'll be some dogs that can really handle, you know, searching, you know, half the day and maybe get one operational find if you're lucky. Um, and, and they can handle that and it's cool. Um, so I think it sort of highlights that sometimes we may not, uh, maybe beneficial to think about how to, you know, finding the career for your dog rather than a dog for your career sometimes. And that kind mm -hmm. of depends on. I mean, obviously there are different settings, but it might mean that if you have a particular, if you have a particular job, then you might need to find the right dog for that. But if you have a particular dog, you might need to find the right job for them. Um, yeah. Not that you can't do certain things, but that they might just enjoy certain things better than others. Um, so, but yeah, no, there's definitely individual differences. We haven't been able to pinpoint on ultimate sources of that, but, um, mm -hmm. but no, I, I completely concur that we, we see, uh, very clear, consistent differences by some individuals. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, two of the other things that I've kind of thought of for these long searches, one, I know in the conservation dog field, it's relatively common to say, okay, we're going to be looking for wolverines. They've got massive, massive ranges, really, really rugged terrain, pretty, pretty hard to find. Maybe we also train the dog, you know, we, we find another partner and we part and we try to work on wolf and Puma. And, you know, like each of those three animals are going to be in somewhat similar areas. They're all pretty hard to find. And then, you know, we've got more rewardable opportunities. Obviously, that's not an option in some other fields, but in conservation, sometimes we can do that. Um, I know with black-footed ferrets, which is kind of the quintessential horribly hard project that I've worked on, you know, we talked about... Uh, <laughs> There are like these darkling beetles that wander around. Can we train the dogs to also find the darkling beetles or maybe burrowing owls or something where, you know, mm -hmm. we've just got more opportunities for reward. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I've thought of um, that I haven't experimented with too much would just be different levels of reward. You know, can I give my dog a bit of hot dog for an all clear and his ball for um, a find and how well that would work? Is that anything that you've looked into or thought about looking into in the future? Yeah. So approaching the, um, you know, broadening what the target is so that you can increase the frequency of finds, whether it's for your primary target versus uh, an accessory target, uh, and most certainly that will maintain motivation much better uh, and help with, with those types of performance decrements. Uh, really the only issues where, I, where you might 
run into something again is if there's going to be a uh, a massive differential in frequency. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you're going to be finding every two feet, you know your your other thing, and that you'll only find once a week your 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 primary target, then you might just get all behavior going towards you know the the easy right. thing. Yeah. Uh, so in my example, you uh, probably wouldn't want to do coyote or red fox or right. or like red squirrel for for God's sake. Like so, nothing, nothing yeah. that common. So you find something that's in between there that will increase the number of operational finds to a rate that your dog can tolerate is a really great way to to sort mm-hmm. of go about sort of addressing some of those issues. In terms of the variable level of reinforcement. We haven't experimented with that one just yet. Just, uh, I'd say anecdotally, I think there would be promise, but it might be hard just because from doing different types of, of reward preference tests, there are definitely differences in preferences, but they tend to still have similar effects in terms of rewarding, mm-hmm. um, unless you really have, it, it'll come down to you know individual, right? Because there are definitely going to oh. be some dogs that will you know, spit out most kibbles for the ball, but there'll be other dogs where, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're getting a kibble or a ball or something like that. They're going mm-hmm. to be, they'll be different, but they're going to basically be pretty similar. So, um, yeah, like I don't really care whether I'm paid in Canadian or U S dollars as long as <laughs> exactly. I'm in my bank account. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think that that one would be individual specific and would be a bit hard to evaluate. I think yeah. it definitely has a potential. Um, but that one might be, again, come down to the specific dog and, and, and situation mm-hmm. again. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I think there are definitely both ways to get at it. And um, and in the explosive round, there was a paper that came out, I think it was 2012, uh, where they actually looked at, you know, training dogs to some non-explosives so that you can give the dogs some operational fines to non-explosives because you don't want to be putting explosives in secure areas. Um, and that was actually very successful. So there is really good evidence so far to indicate that that would be a, a good way to go about it. So if you have another sort of comparable species and they don't have to be, you know, completely the same frequency, but that they're not completely out, you know, of of wildly different frequencies. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't want like a 10 to one. Yeah. So you, you, and obviously the research for that is pretty unknown. So I, I, Mm-hmm. No idea what that frequency is. That's kind of my guess, but um, yeah, yeah. But that definitely, I think you know, is going to be one way that will really help you because what's happening is you're getting extinction of that search behavior. That, that yeah, uh, they're you know they're no longer they're not finding the target odor because the target odor becomes a reward. Finding the target is a reward in of itself. That then when they alert, you get the terminal reward. But that target odor becomes a reward. And that's what sort of reinforces that search behavior. And if they're not finding anything, then that search starts to decline because it's going under right. extinction. Yeah, yeah, you might. Well, and I think sometimes people see, you know, that extinction burst, that like increased intensity and in behavior and mm-hmm. think that that's a good thing. And if the dog is able to find something during that extinction burst, that could certainly build endurance. But if they don't, and then you've just totally ridden out your extinction burst, you know, now we've, now we've extincted our behavior. Yep. And then you get variability of response. False alerts can go mm-hmm. up in that situation. And mm-hmm. then you, yeah. So there's a, yeah, well, and let alone, like I know for, for us here, like we're really focused on a lot of, you know, kind of humane hierarchy based dog training. And like, I don't want my dog to be, you know, even besides the, the efficacy, like I don't want my dog operating in this extinction contingency and just being frustrated all the time. Like I want searching to be, a fun and good and exciting thing for him because obviously it's good for like both of our long-term careers, <laughs> but uh, you know, I also like my dog and want him to enjoy his job. Yep. Since and extinction will happen. And you know, and if you're running in that extinction, extinction will happen faster and faster with time. Right. So if it, mm-hmm. you know, if the first round you go out there, it takes 30 minutes and then your dog search extinguishes and you didn't find anything. The next time you go out there, it might take 20 minutes. Then the next time it might take 10 yeah. minutes. And then you'll end up in a situation where you're bringing your dog out and they're just looking like they're not searching. And it's like, why did this happen? That The first day I brought him out, he was doing great. It's because you've sort of run them through extinction for multiple times in a row. And now they're learning, yeah. okay, when I come out here, I'm under extinction conditions. So why bother? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I've definitely seen that heard of that happening and yeah, I mean, it just makes sense. Dogs like the rest of us pretty much just do what works for them. And if nothing's working for them, then why, why put in the effort? Mm-hmm. And then we start seeing all sorts of fun, you know, the false alerts start coming in. I know in our field, we tend to see a lot of extra crittering coming in where they're really starting to scan the environment for alternative sources of reinforcement, like <laughs> squirrels, um, which is a pretty bad look for a conservation dog to be yeah. chasing, <laughs> chasing <Yeah>. critters. Um, <laughs> And obviously also really highly reinforcing for the dog. So it's just, you know, we're really, we really have to be set up to compete against that um, in an intelligent way. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are all the questions I had for, did you, did you have any other thoughts or anything that we, you know, needed to circle back to as we were talking? No, I, I always have other thoughts, but nothing that I think (laughs) will deserve expressing at this point. Okay. Well, we can always have you back on after uh, after a couple months, and I'm sure we'll have more things to talk about. It's uh, it's been a pleasure as always. So let's just quick remind people the name of your lab and where people can find you if they want to follow you on ResearchGate or whatever else. Um, yep. Uh, my sort of I guess publishing name is Nathaniel J. Hall. I'm at Texas Tech University. You should be able to find me under Google that way. But we also have a Facebook page perhaps an Instagram page. I can't remember. Um, yeah. And uh, a general website. And I haven't updated it recently, but if there are any papers that you come across from us in Google or Google Scholar and you don't have uh, access to it, just send me an email and I can email them out to you. Excellent. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to um, the ones that we kind of explicitly mentioned. So um, that 2016 paper with you and... Um, Oh gosh, who was it? Hall, Hall Smith and Wynn, uh, 2016. And then um, if you are able to find that 2012 paper, um, yes. we will we'll link to that, even if it's just to the abstract. And um, yeah, people will be able to find those show notes over at canineconservationists.org. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can always find our show notes and extra information on this episode at canineconservationists.org and make sure you support our field vehicle repairs over at GoFundMe. Consider joining our Patreon, all that good stuff. Until next time.